Is that good? There we go. Um, you guys remember this guy? As he likes to, uh, Randy really loves kind of always sitting in the background. And I had a number of people ask me a few weeks ago, the guy over here, you know, and uh, we are really excited. I don't know if you heard this news, but Randy was actually just discharged from uh, the hospital on Friday, uh, the rehab center actually where he was at. And so although he still needs to go back on a regular basis, like every day for multiple hours for rehab, uh, he and Jen are actually living in their own house in Phoenix. And so we really thank the Lord for his kindness. He called me, uh, FaceTimed me on Friday and spent most of the time, him and Jen, just crying. So grateful for the prayers that have been lifted up for him. So grateful uh, for the donor and for that family making that decision. So grateful uh, for God's kindness to him. And so we just thought it was appropriate that we would just stop and give thanks to God um, for his unmerited goodness to our good brother Randy and also to us. Let's pray. God, we do give you praise and thanks. In moments like this, we, 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 we say, and it's so readily off of our tongue, the goodness of God. Isn't God good? Um, I've been reminded that there is absolutely nothing that we could ever say contrary to that. Um, Father, for you alone are good. Uh, And yet we are truly thankful uh, that you have heard our prayers and that you have answered our prayers. We are truly grateful um, for all of the things that have happened in order for our brother um, to be Restored, and, and we know there's still a long road to go. May we continue to lift up Randy and Jen and the family for three more months of rehab in Phoenix. Um, we long for the day when we can see him here, and I doubt if he's going to want to come up on the stage, um, but we'll make him, and it will be yet one more opportunity for us to give glory and honor and praise to you. So we thank you for our uh, brother Randy and for his love for you and devotion to you. Um, his praise of your name. Thank you, Father, for you are good. It's in Christ's name we humbly pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We'll turn our hearts and our minds now to this time of worship um, and the hearing and teaching of the word. And it's interesting where uh, several of us are in the woven uh, Bible study group, and we're doing God of the Covenant. And uh, in week four, it talks about Abraham, uh, God asking him to take his only son, up on the mountain, a son he waited for for a long time, and to sacrifice him. And uh, Jen Wilkin, who does the videos, talks about back in that time, sacrifice was an act of worship. We don't always think of that. We think of coming in here and singing as that act of worship. But there is sacrifice. And then then you look at what Paul tells us, that we're to live, be a living sacrifice because of what Christ has done. And I just think that's so important for us to remember in this time of Lent as we're leading up to uh, Easter. And so our text today is going to come from Mark. Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. And it's the triumphal entry as Jesus is making his way just days before he is about to be an only son that's offered up as a sacrifice. So let us hear the word of God. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, 
Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. They brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The word of God given as a gift to the people of God. Thanks be to God. If if I don't know you, my name is Ryan Vincent. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is going to be my joy to work through this passage with you this morning. Now, I thought that I would open with just a reminder of what it is that we've come together to do today. Um... But I didn't know that we were, going to, we were going to put up that Randy photo, and I got really emotional, and it just makes this reminder all the more important. It makes it important that in a couple of services, we're going to have two people give their lives to Christ in baptism, and I think it's just really um, necessary for us to recognize that we're not just here to hear something. We're not just here to sing something, but we're here to, as Rebecca pointed out, to worship so I, I, I kind of set out to just, in, a, in just a few words, what is it we do on Sundays? And we're here to gather together in the presence of the one and most holy God. We're here this morning to give thanks for his goodness and mercy. Again, I didn't know the Randy photo would be there, but how appropriate. And to proclaim together his most praiseworthy name. We're here to hear his holy word. We're here to gather in prayer, to ask for ourselves and on behalf of others, the things we need for both salvation and to live lives of faithfulness and holiness. In other words, we are here to encounter our great God, the Ancient of Days, and to allow him to further conform us into the image of Jesus. We're here to worship, and as Rebecca mentioned we have, uh, we have entered the season of Lent. Last Sunday, Drew Moss began this season for us by pointing our eyes toward the Mount of Transfiguration. And this is a season where we will take some intentional time in preparation for Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday comes once a year, one of our two high holidays, but we want to spend this time preparing for Easter The colors have changed, our tone is going to change, our subject matter has changed. It's a season of introspection, a season of repentance, a season of discipline and preparation, a season in which we recount the story of Jesus' passion. You might find it strange, given how the calendar typically works, that we're talking about the triumphal entry and we're still a month away from Palm Sunday. 
This text is usually trotted out to be preached the week before Easter because we talk about that final week of Jesus' life. But the approach that we're taking this year is that we want to approach the whole Lenten season, the whole Easter preparation season, how the Gospels do. They, get, they, they, they cover a lot of Jesus' life, but then they slow down when they get to the end because these details are so important, and so we're going to go over them and over them and over them. So we're talking about Palm Sunday. That happened 2,000 years ago, a little early this year, and it's a, it's a fascinating story. And that's where I want to, uh, to turn our eyes as, as we focus on this story is um, I love stories. I've always been a reader growing up. I, uh, my, my mom jokes that I'm blind now, virtually blind, because whenever we would take car trips, I would just read in the back seat. And I don't know if this is really good for your eyes, but I couldn't stop. I just love to read. But it's more than that. I loved stories. In part, I, was, I grew up around a grandfather who was a master storyteller. He was a preacher for nearly 50 years before he died, three or four years ago, and uh, he was just one of those guys that could spin a tale and have everybody on the edge of their seat. He always had a good joke. He lived in a small town. I'd go with him to this little diner, and people would flock around him to just hear my grandpa tell stories. Some of them were probably even true. Um, he had a brother, Uncle Gordon. He had a brother that lived in Lubbock, and whenever we would venture down to Lubbock, that long, treacherous trip to Lubbock, and we would go stay at Uncle Gordon's house. He loved to tell stories, but he loved to gather children around and tell scary stories. And so he was that guy that we kind of liked because he was entertaining, but we knew that this night was going to end in sheer terror. And he loved these stories, ghost stories particularly. And, I, and my sister and I remember distinctly the story about some ghost that was wandering the night looking for its golden arm. And Uncle Gordon was phenomenal at telling stories in a way that gets kids to lean in. Lean in, lean in, and you forget that now you're really vulnerable. So when the point of the story gets to where he wants it to be, he can scream and grab you and all the kids jump and run away. He's a masterful storyteller. I love stories. I grew up with a dad who told us bedtime stories every night. He, he would read to us, sure, but he would make up stories just out of his head. And he'd, he'd lie down in bed next to me or my sister and he would tell stories. He told this, these ongoing serial stories about uh, Prince Humphrey and Princess Jessica, who my sister and I weren't very bright in the beginning. It took us a while to figure out we're us, because Prince Humphrey just sounded a lot like me. He responded to things like I did. He even had dark hair. My dad was like, he was just pulling this long con on us. Same thing with Princess Jessica and my little sister. My wife loves stories. She loves to tell them. She tells stories to our little kids um, to our two oldest particularly, about two kids, brother and sister pair, named Bumpkin and Bloomy. And it was astonishing to me to look at how long it took Matthew and Audrey to figure out that they are Bumpkin and Bloomy. But they, the, the stories drew them in because Rachel's a good storyteller. Not only does she know where she's going so she can sprinkle in useful details along the way, she knows her audience and she can string them along because she knows what Bumpkin slash Matthew is like. She knows what... Bloomy slash Audrey is interested in, and she can just craft this story. And I do this with my kids. I love reading to them, but I, I tell them stories. I'm not so clever. I, just, I have Captain Matt and Captain Audrey, a brother and sister pair of pirates that patrol the Caribbean and get into all sorts of adventures. 
But I know the audience too. And so Captain Matt stands at the helm of a giant black pirate ship with red sails and 20 cannons on each side, and he's always ready for anything that can come at him. Captain Audrey commands a ship that is painted with rainbow colors, and the masts are made of unicorn horns. And so this is the kind of the stories, I know my audience, and I know how to spin it. I know where the story's going, otherwise they would just have me in their bedroom forever. So I know I've got to end this story. I know the details that I need to sprinkle here so that at the end, they'll get it. At the end, they'll experience that aha. And it's just all these examples of how I've grown up and how I, I do life now with my own kids just point to the fact that there is a distinct difference between the one who knows the story and is, in a sense, crafting the story and the one who's being led along to experience it real time. And so when I look at something like the triumphal entry, it becomes immediately obvious that there are two different, radically different perspectives in this story. There are the perspectives of those who are following Jesus, who are experiencing these events real time, who are trying to grapple with what's happening. They're trying to make sense of the last almost three years and understand what this event could possibly mean, these, these series of interesting circumstances. And then there's Jesus, who participates in the story but knows the whole thing. He knows what he's doing. He knows the end of the story. He's putting details here and there so that at the end, these participants, these witnesses, those who are experiencing the story real time will be able to pull it all together and say, aha, I understand. So what I want to do is I want to just walk through some of the, the, the details of this story and ask, so what what did those who were following Jesus understand? What did they see? And what did Jesus know? And the differences between the two are shocking. But it also helps us see maybe in the end what the gospel writer, what Mark, is wanting to do here. So first, it says that they have shown up and they're, they're approaching Jerusalem. They're going by Bethany and Bethpage and they're on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is to the east of Jerusalem. So if I'm asking the question, what did his followers experience, I think that they knew that the Passover is right around the corner. The Passover is celebrated in the city of Jerusalem. We've been staying with friends in Bethany, and now Jesus says, it's time to start making our way toward Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. I think that's what his followers understood. What did Jesus know? Jesus knew that to this point, his ministry had been focused in the north, in Galilee, and that this is going to serve as something of a crescendo toward his eventual resurrection, as he has descended down into in, the southern part of the country, he's in Bethany with some friends, and now he is going over Mount Olives, where it said God's king would one day set foot there and stride into his kingdom, Jerusalem. Jesus hasn't really been in Jerusalem yet in Mark's gospel, and this climactic turn is pushing us toward the Passion Week that we all know about now, but his followers had not understood to this point. Well, what about the cult? The donkey that was tied up, what did his followers experience? Well, first of all, they thought they knew Jesus was a miracle worker. They could account for his his supernatural ability to know where, that this cult was going to be there and to even arrange for it to have been available for him. 
He may, they may have even assumed that he had prearranged for this cult to be available to them. Now, they knew about this famous prophecy back in Zechariah 9 about a king on a cult, but I can't fathom that they would have connected those dots here with Jesus in the moment. Because Zechariah 9 is all about the oppression that comes with surrounding military forces and surrounding governments, and that Israel's king, Jerusalem's king, is going to, God's king, is going to ride in on a cult and destroy them all and set up his final government. And I can't imagine when Jesus, with all the fanfare of maybe 30 or 40 people riding into Jerusalem, that they would be connecting that to Zechariah chapter 9. This is an unsaddled animal, so you you get in the story that they needed to put their cloaks on his back because he didn't have a saddle, and they needed a spot for Jesus to sit. If I'm also one of his followers, I would think, okay, he he wants an animal to ride in on. Jesus doesn't ride animals, so maybe he's wanting to enter the Passover festival with some degree of pomp and circumstance. He is, after all, a famous teacher. He's a healer. People know of Jesus' reputation, and he might want to enter the city with some degree of flair. What did Jesus know? Jesus knew that not only is he Israel's Messiah, that he is the sovereign Lord of history, that he can have supernatural knowledge of this animal that is waiting for him, and he can arrange things through his sheer will to have them available to him. And he knew Zechariah 9.9, which is a highly messianic text, which says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. This is in a time of Israel's utter devastation. And they've just returned from exile, and they're looking around, and Rome is now in power, and they don't have any ability to actually come to uh, full power as God intended for them to be as the people of God. And Zechariah prophesies, just rejoice, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus knew that, in fact, that was talking about him on this day. And Jesus knew that this is is not even um, without precedent. Even Solomon, the great king, son of David, rode in on his day of coronation on a donkey. Jesus knew that The unridden nature of this animal made it ceremonially fit for a royal rider. Well, what about the clothes and the branches? They spread them out over the road. It says many people spread their clothes on the road and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Now, the triumphal entry is is found in all four Gospels. It's from John's Gospel that we get the idea of palm branches, which is a strange detail because there's no palm branches to be found in ancient Jerusalem. You had to go to Jericho, closer to the Dead Sea, to actually find those. That's not a detail we have to deal with here. We're in Mark. But it says that they set these things and they spread them out on the road as Jesus rides toward the city. What did his followers experience? Again, I think that they thought, we love this man We believe that he is a prophet. We believe that he is a healer. Some of his followers to this point believe that he was indeed the Messiah, but we'll see that they don't hold that belief very strongly until the resurrection takes place. And I think that what they're doing is they are are giving a beautiful ceremonial entry into the city for a famous prophet from Nazareth. What did Jesus know? Jesus knew 
that there were occasions in Israel's history, like the coronation of King Jehu, where you do take off your outer garments and lay them down in reverence for a king. Jesus knew that this moment will be celebrated for thousands of years by people who will believe in him and his work on the cross and his resurrection as they prepare for Easter, Palm Sunday. Jesus knew that this moment is charged with significance. But then they say, they start singing and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna. Hosanna is the Hebrew word that says, save us now. It's an appeal to God to save us now. This phrase is verbatim pulled from Psalm 118, which I think is what his followers would have known. It says, Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. Psalm 118 is what's known as a pilgrim song. It's a song that as people were making their way into Jerusalem, particularly for the Passover festival, for their yearly pilgrimage, that they would be singing these songs. Kind of like the wheels on the bus go around there. It's something you say to pass the time on your journey. This is a pilgrim song. They knew this song. I think you and I read this this quotation, you're like, they all get who he is. They understand. In fact, when you go and read John's account, you realize that once Jesus enters the city, people are like, who is this guy? They don't know who he is. This is a festive moment. This is a moment where people are celebrating this famous teacher coming in, and unfortunately for, I think, our eyes, it looks unique, but this is this is what they sang for everybody. Robert Stein is a, a scholar, very well versed in first century history. He said, in terms of Psalm 118, which at one point was an appeal for God to save them out of exile by the first century, however, its use, Hosanna, its use in Psalm 118 was no longer understood literally as a cry by those shouting it for God to now save the people of Israel from their enemies. Being repeated by pilgrims each year at the various major festivals, it had become more idiomatic in nature and way by then an expression of joy and jubilation, much as in the use of the word today. Like, Hosanna is seldom said today with an actual sense that we're appealing to God to save us now. Much like the expression, praise the Lord, which at one point was a command. And now it's an exclamation of joy kind of like whenever we tell someone, bless your heart, we're actually probably mocking them half the time. We're not actually asking for God to bless their heart. These phrases become, um, they, they, they become pedestrian over time. So the people knew that this is what we sing when we go to Jerusalem for the Passover. In fact, for every single pilgrim that passed through the gates into the temple complex. There would be someone up on the wall shouting these very words down as a blessing over them. This was not reserved for Jesus alone. So what did his followers know? We are going in to worship, and we even have our famous prophet with us. This is a joyful, festive atmosphere, and we have an honorable prophet. What did Jesus know? Jesus knew that he was about to bring Psalm 118 into reality. 
He knew that he is the one who can save. He was about to save them. He knew that he is the eternal king from the line of David, and he knew that he is both blessed by God and will be God's blessing to these people. And then it ends with this bafflingly pedestrian verse. Jesus walks in in verse 11, peeks around, and leaves. This is a whole story in Mark's gospel. What did his followers experience? They experienced what effectively became an evening walk. A bit of a look around at this place where uh, in the week to follow, excitement, celebration would break out. What did Jesus know? He knew that he had just entered the city, God's favorite city, his chosen city as her king. And that shouts of praise and adoration had been unknowingly sung before him. And that tomorrow he is going to enter this complex and assert his authority over that temple when he clears it from the money changers and the criminals and those who would be sullying the worship taking place there. In effect, what did Jesus' followers understood? They understood that this was a somewhat confusing, enthusiastic welcome of the famous religious teacher and healer named Jesus of Nazareth. But Jesus knew that this was a highly significant messianic event and the most important week in the history of humanity had begun on that hill, the Mount of Olives that day. So we have these two perspectives. Jesus who knows the end of the story and can see everything clearly and those who are experiencing the details as they unfold, unwittingly unaware of the fullness of the story. But we have this third perspective that we haven't brought up yet, and that's that of Mark, the author, who by the time he's writing his gospel, Jesus has long since ascended to the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit has long since descended on the people in Jerusalem during Pentecost, and the church is blossoming all the way to where he's writing this gospel from Rome. You see, Mark writes the story and in it, we know that they don't understand what's happening. Jesus does, and Mark is writing all of it after the fact. So he's crafting it in a way that he wants us to understand something very specific. So how does Mark lead his readers to respond? Until now, Jesus, until chapter 11, so Mark 1 through 10, Jesus has strangely, strangely delayed the public proclamation of his messianic identity. If you've ever done any uh, studies in Mark, even probably in your study Bibles, they'll, they'll talk about what's known as the messianic secret. In Mark's gospel, for 10 chapters, Jesus does incredible things and says, don't go tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Go home. Don't tell anybody. For 10 chapters. He does it with demons. In chapter 1, a demon shouts out, you're the holy one of God, which results in Jesus exercising that demon and telling him to shut up. Later in chapter 1, Jesus virtually cleanses the entire town of Capernaum of their demons. And he tells them to be quiet. In the Sea of Galilee, a demon shouts out that you are the Son of God. Jesus doesn't exercise him, but tells him to remain quiet, commands him to remain quiet. It's not just the demons. 
Jesus is healing people. He heals a leper in chapter one, tells him to be quiet. Heals Jairus' daughter, raises her to life, and then tells the family, you cannot tell anybody about this. That's John or Mark chapter five. In Mark chapter seven, a deaf man is healed and then told to be quiet, which would have deep irony, by the way. Um, and the crowds, though, they won't be quiet. The man is told to be quiet, but everyone who sees it is like, we gotta tell everybody. The secret's starting to get out. In chapter eight, a blind man is healed and is immediately sent home away from the crowd so that they will not discover who Jesus is or what he's done. Baffling. Demons are told to be quiet. Those who have been healed are told to be quiet. Even the disciples are told to be quiet. Jesus makes his great confession in Mark chapter 8, and, uh, and he's met with the command to not tell anyone. At, last week, our, our transfiguration text from Drumas They see this incredible event take place where there's Moses and Elijah and the voice speaking, thundering from heaven, and Jesus is transfigured. He's glowing with the presence of God. And on the way down, Jesus is like, hey, no no words about this until after the resurrection. See, for 10 chapters in Mark's gospel, quiet, quiet, quiet. And then chapter 11, The doors are blown open, and the Messiah is now here publicly for the entire world to see. As a gospel writer, Mark introduces him as Jesus Christ. That is, Christ is the the Greek word for Messiah. That's chapter one. So Mark is not hiding it from us, the readers. He's just saying that for those that were taking place in real time, this was hidden. This was mysterious, strangely delayed, The demons knew of Jesus' identity. Peter finally figured out Jesus' identity. People were figuring it out all along the way. And then the very last story in chapter 10, Mark's very secretive introduction, the very last story is when Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus. The old Jericho road, Bartimaeus calling out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Secrets getting out. And now the gloves are off. Palm Sunday is here. Mark invites us as readers to respond as God speaks clearly now through Jesus. And that can seem rather pedestrian for a Palm Sunday text. But I think that there is something important for us about about going back to the basics during this season as we prepare for Easter and ask, okay, so in light of Christ's work and his passion and all of these things that go with it, what is the response supposed to be? It has to be more than just this initial faith. It has to be more than just this initial conversion. Why do we as Christians celebrate Easter every year? Isn't that something that you should celebrate that first year that you're a Christian? Why do we keep coming back to it? What should our response be? Well, it should certainly be one of faith. Um, but these, these gospel stories, there's so much to, to mine here. They give us examples of faith that is, a, that is a little off base. First of all, sometimes we suffer from a misdirected faith. After all, in chapter 8, Peter's confession was one of enthusiastic anticipation of the overthrow of the Roman Empire. That's really what he felt Jesus should do. Even in John's gospel, the crowds are wanting to make Jesus king. 
It's misdirected faith. James and John both want the best seats in the kingdom. And everybody in Jerusalem, all those crowds are so excited. They want political and military supremacy over Rome. Brothers and sisters, I won't lie, I saw some of that same misdirected faith, not only in our last election cycle, but I see it all the time in just our American church culture, a faith that is in a Jesus who is expected to do something other than that which he's promised. Lent would be a good time to reflect on those expectations and ask if they're fair if they align with the gospel at all. Sometimes it's not a misdirected faith. Sometimes you and I have a wavering faith. We have crowds in these stories that enjoy miracles, but in a week they're going to call for his crucifixion. We have disciples who will make bold declarations about who Jesus is, but in a week they'll abandon him. We have ourselves who find it Rather easy to believe in Jesus when the circumstances are good, when our finances are sound, when our health is good. Harder so when those things go away. And the one that maybe I have the hardest time with because in myself, in you, in all of us, we're so blind to this one. Our faith wavers whenever We find it so easy to trust in Jesus when we agree with him. And in the moment that he disagrees with me, I wag my proverbial finger in his chest. But I think that what we can gather from how Mark arranges these stories and tells us of this king coming to his city on his cult is that when God speaks clearly, as in Mark's gospel, he is about to do for the remaining six chapters. When God speaks clearly through Jesus, we respond obediently in faith. And that's what Lent is about. Asking, what do we know about Jesus? What is it about this gospel story that's worth recounting year after year after year? And then how am I supposed to respond? In my case, in 2005, I responded with the initial commitment of faith. This will be my 16th Easter after that. How am I supposed to continue responding to this Jesus as I look at this plain, plain revelation that God is speaking through him? First of all, this could be an exhaustive list. Um, which might make some of you nervous, but I'm going to give you three. The first way is that we respond in, with repentance. Repentance is not just the initial move toward Jesus, it's the ongoing rhythm with Jesus. In Acts 17, speaking before unbelievers, but for Paul, I believe he's speaking from a personal experience of ongoing repentance. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands people everywhere to repent because he set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul connects repentance to the evidence that you and I have right before our eyes every single Easter. Proof that God has offered. 
in Christ. We respond with repentance. We also respond to God's clear revelation of Christ with boldness. And brothers and sisters, this is what you and I need today. We need boldness. Not only before the throne, but before others. In Hebrews 10, the author says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, not a faith that wavers, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. There it is again. Since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. God has spoken clearly through the cross of Christ and I need to respond in boldness and part of how I can do that is to do it with you. That's why I want to do Lent with you. Encouraging each other. Instilling courage. Instilling boldness in one another. And the third way I want to offer for you this morning of responding to God's revelation in Christ is to do so with wisdom. To ask God for wisdom and to exercise wisdom. Colossians 1 says, For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We're asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That is one of my favorite prayers because it's something I never would have thought to pray for. To ask that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. And then watch how he just pulls it back to Easter. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his Son he loves in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In other words, we read stories like that of the triumphal entry and we recognize that this king is coming and he will soon go to that cross and then he will get out of that grave. And all of those ideas have incredible implications for how you and I live today. We need to do so with regular repentance, with bold hearts that pursue the wisdom of God. And that world out there is not going to be a big fan of you and I trying to live like that. In fact, they're going to find it quite foolish. Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous philosopher, atheist, says this, and this would have been considered somewhat radical at the time, late 1800s, but I, I would assume that it is the majority view today for those who do not follow Jesus. He says this, What sets us apart is not that we recognize no God, either in history or in nature or behind nature, but what sets us apart is that we find that which has been reverenced as God, not God-like, but pitiable, absurd, harmful, not merely an error, but a crime against life. 
Just he and others like him, which again, I think might be the increasing majority, can see no kingly value in someone who would ride in on a donkey or much worse, go to a cross. We're not going to get a lot of help living out this life of obedience from those who do not follow the one we must obey, but it will be encouraged in this community of faith. Together we can strive toward obedience and the resulting holiness. Um, There's this song that takes up this idea that the world is going to push against the life that Christ has called us to, but together we can resist. I'm just going to read you a few lines from this song. It's called The Resistance by a man named Josh Gerrels. In this first section, he is, he is kind of looking at a culture that is hostile to the things of God. He says, look at the long line of make-believe kings. And the Lord of the Flies wants you to kiss his ring. Follow new rules with invisible strings and become a puppet in the diabolical scheme. How do good men become part of the regime? They don't believe in resistance. He's calling us to, to stand firm against that which got against the things of God. And then he calls us in this next, in this next little section to, to speak boldly. And he says, we have to put to death the fear that is in us and to speak boldly. He says, every mortal breath is meant to bring forth fire. We're meant to raise praise to the God of the heavens. But only when the fear of death gets consumed on the funeral pyre. So let the flames rise higher. Let every man be considered a liar. If he doubts the goodness and faithfulness of God, itching ears will compulsively nod in approval. When unbelief is taught in our temples and schools, but God can restrain the madness of a fool. He can bring his truth through the mouth of a mule. You can move a mountain without any tools. It just takes the faith of a little seed to make a way through what might seem to be impossibility. And then he points our eyes into the future when God will return. And the ability will match the occasion. The outcome will defy explanation. The liberation will not be televised when it arrives like lightning in the skies. And then the closing little refrain at the end of the song is this encouragement to do this together. Hold fast, my people, and sing. Through peace and through suffering. All for the joy that it brings to be free. It's going to cost us everything to follow one Lord and King. True love endures everything to be free. And I love that. He just puts in this beautiful, poetic way what I think is the weight of these Gospels that tell us the story of Jesus and the implications those stories have on our lives. I think what Mark wants us to say is the same thing the Roman centurion says when he stares up at Jesus on the cross. I think he wants us to say, truly, this is the Son of God. When you can grasp that statement, the most natural response is to love him by obeying him. And that's the kind of worship that you and I can offer. And that's why we come to things like these. Truly, this is the Son of God. And truly, he demands our obedience, our allegiance, our, work, our worship. So in preparation 
for Easter as we get ready to commemorate the resurrection, which gives us the life to even live like this in the first place. We remember the sacrifice made for us, so we will take the bread. Here in the cup. Amen.